The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And we are not ignorant of what Christians endure in this world today. And we are not ignorant of some of the affliction that is in our own lives. Father, these are truths that we are aware of. But I pray, Lord, would you also give grace to us this morning to make us equally aware of you, the truth of who you are, how you relate to us, the fact that you lift us up on eagles' wings, that you are worthy of being hoped in, that you raise the dead. We praise you that you lifted up Paul, raised him up even eventually as he was killed. Father, help us to handle these two things in our minds, that affliction is real and that you are real and that you are gracious towards us, loving, merciful, and kind. Use your scripture today, Father. Use this time here now to help us deal with these things. Give clarity to my words. Give clarity to our thinking. Father, would you cause this time to cause us to hope in you, to love Christ, to lean on him. Accomplish that, I pray. Open your word to us now, Lord. To the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation or maybe a period in life in which you look at something that you're enduring and say, as you look at it, where is the grace of God in this? You look at a hardship or a pain or a trial in your life and you say, why is God not kindly, graciously answering my prayer and removing this or stopping it or prohibiting it or changing it? If, if he loved me, if he was gracious towards me, wouldn't he be doing something? Have you ever been in that situation or a situation like that? It's a pretty common thing in life. We know some things. If you're a Christian, you know some things about God and grace and how he deals with you. And if you're living, you look at life and you also know some things about tribulation and hardship and trial comes in, in different flavors and different degrees at different points in our lives. But if you've been alive on planet Earth long enough, you've been familiar with some of those things. How do you put them together? This morning, Acts chapter 14 is going to provide us an opportunity to think about that. And this is not going to be the, the final word on how grace and suffering and affliction work together. It's not going to be the final word, but it will begin the conversation perhaps or maybe remind you of some things you know. And my hope is that this morning as we, as we talk about these things that you'd be encouraged to when affliction comes in your life to draw near to God and to hope more in Him and to be mindful of Him and not to grow cold towards Him and turn away from Him. May that happen this morning from Acts 14. Last week in Acts chapter 13... We saw the gospel being preached. The gospel was the main issue. We saw it being proclaimed in a synagogue in the city Antioch. 
Paul had come into the town, had preached in the synagogue, and the people had been intrigued enough to want to hear him again. And so they invite him back. And last week we saw him show up to a massive crowd, Jew and Gentile both. And as he preached the gospel again, crowds divided. Gentiles embraced this word, while largely Jewish people opposed it. Gentiles embraced the message that the gospel was for Gentiles as well. People of all sorts, they could be justified, declared not guilty in the eyes of God. They heard that, they embraced it, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And a lot of people opposed him. Persecution broke out and eventually drove Paul and Barnabas out of chapter 13 into chapter 14, where we are today in the city of Iconium. So the backdrop of this is physical persecution. That's why chapter 14 happens. Paul, preaching the gospel, persecuted. That's the backdrop. Let me read the text for today. All of Acts chapter 14. It's a lengthy passage, but I need to read the whole thing to see the whole story. This is Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now at Iconium... They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done for, with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Verse 1 begins with Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, which is about 100 miles to the southeast from Antioch where they'd been chased out. And there was a synagogue there, so as usual, they go to the synagogue first, and they begin to preach, and they preach boldly and successfully, and many believe, and many don't. So the crowd, the city is again divided, and there was opposition, and it wasn't an opposition just kind of seeking information. There was hostility there. They were poisoning the minds of people, it says. And so Paul and Barnabas stayed and engaged in debate. They were probably going on for some time. Days, probably back and forth, arguing about is this message that we preach, is the gospel true or not? And they were backed up by the power of God who was testifying to the truth of the word of his grace by giving them miraculous power. So perhaps in the face of, of these miracles, people just get, eventually get tired of arguing and decide to kill them. That's what stoning would be. You throw stones at someone until they die. It's a method of execution. They decide they're going to do that. Paul and Barnabas hear about it, though, and they leave, and they move on to some neighboring towns, begin to preach there. Now, the miracles that were performed there in Iconium did not persuade people, did not lead them to faith, and we see another miracle in Lystra that has another interesting effect. This is a little bit of a warning to us about those of us who think that miracles are all-powerful. They're not. We've seen this repeatedly. It is no guarantee that a miracle will convince someone. Sometimes it does. On Cyprus, with the Roman proconsul, the miracle of striking that man blind convinced him of the truth of the gospel. Here, though, it doesn't. The crowds chase them out. When they find another man in Lystra who's been paralyzed from birth, Paul looks at him and sees that he has faith to be healed, and he heals him. And how do the crowds respond? Not in faith. See that in a second. But let me pause on the phrase, faith to be healed. He had faith to be healed. Be careful with this phrase. There is no warrant in it for us to look at that and say, therefore, when somebody is not healed, the person lacks faith. We sometimes follow the scriptures where it says in the book of James that we should anoint people with oil and lay hands on them and pray for them to be healed. And if that doesn't happen, what do we make of that? Don't use this verse to say, well, the person didn't believe hard enough or well enough. There is no one-to-one -one correlation between faith and healing. Think, for instance, of the Gospels. Jesus healed all kinds of people who had no idea who he was. There's no direct connection between faith and healing. 
Here in this passage, there is. Why? Because of the context. In an evangelistic setting, God is giving power to back up the message, the message that is, by faith you can be saved, or healed, very same word. Saved and healed is the same word. By faith you can be saved. Watch this man who's been sitting and listening to the gospel and believes, by faith he will be healed. I'm going to do something in the physical that will mirror the truth in the spiritual realm. So what's going on here, and it would be counterproductive if this man did not have faith and God healed him anyway. Think of the message that sends. I'm preaching that by faith you can be healed spiritually or not. You don't really have to have faith. I'm going to heal you anyway. This man's heard the gospel, rejects it. I'm going to heal him anyway. It's a counterproductive sign. That's why it was necessary that he have faith to be healed. Paul saw that he did. He healed him. And the people totally misunderstand the sign. And they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. There was a local legend that some of the Greek gods from the Greek pantheon of gods, Zeus and Hermes, had previously, at some time in the past, come down to this very region and walked among the people disguised as humans, dishing out benefits and blessings or punishments depending on how they were received. The people had known that from their past. They see this miracle, and their interpretation of it is, Zeus and Hermes are here again, so we'd better receive them properly. Maybe they'll bless us more, and they begin to offer sacrifice. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on because it's in the local dialect rather than in Greek, but when they figure it out, they wade into the crowd and tear their clothes in anguish and say, Stop! And they begin to preach, verses 15 to 17. Obviously, this is a very short sermon, so it's either abbreviated or this is all they got out in the heat of the moment. But it's helpful to us as we look at this because it gives us some clue as to how they would preach when talking to an audience that had no connection to the Jewish scriptures. There will be more to say about this in Acts 17 where we see that same sort of thing going on again in Athens. But here we note, where do they start? They start with God. A step further back than they would start with a Jewish audience because the Jews would all agree on God. They move back a step and begin to talk about God. It should be informative to us as we talk to people who don't have a biblical, biblically informed mind. Who is worthy of worship? Created stuff like us or God who made it all? Clearly the God who made it all and all these things to worship them is vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's pointless. The God who made it all, who made everything everywhere, he is the one we should worship. And he has been so gracious to us in that he has not destroyed us instantly, but he's been patient throughout past generations. As we wander in all of our different ways, he should have struck us dead right away and judged us, but he didn't. He let us wander patiently, giving testimony to himself, pointing us towards him by how he meets all of our physical needs and even satisfies our hearts. That is the one we should worship. That's where they start. There would be more to say after that, of course. But that's where they start. Maybe that's all that they get out and they are laboring to keep the people from sacrificing to them. The people highly revere them. It says they are barely kept from sacrificing to them. Which makes it all the more amazing that in the very next verse they try to kill them. Crowds are remarkably fickle. 
Don't trust crowds. There is no connection between popularity and truth. The crowd runs one way and loves them, and under the different influence of other persuasive people, they run the other way and try to kill them. And they think they've succeeded. They leave him for dead. Remarkably, he gets up, goes right back into the same city. The next day, leaves for Derby. Somehow hauls his battered body out onto the 60-mile road to Derby. Preaches the gospel again there. Plants the church again there. That's the end of the line for this journey. He doubles back, goes back through all the very same cities where they had been rejected. Yes, there's a hostile crowd in every one of those places, but there's also a church in every one of those places. And he goes there to encourage and strengthen them, to warn them about tribulation that lies ahead, to give them elders, to give them leadership, and to give them to God. The travel log then takes them back down to the coast where they sail home to Antioch, and they get back to Antioch, And notice how verses 26 and 27 paint two sides of a situation. They tell about all that God had done with them. They'd been entrusted to the grace of God for the work they accomplished. God had opened a door of faith that they had preached everywhere. Both sides are captured there, in those two verses. The analysis of this missionary journey, the Spirit had raised up and sent them out, and the church had sent them out. God had been extending the gospel through all these cities, and they'd been preaching it. Together, God and Paul and Barnabas, divine and human action, both together accomplishing something. By God's grace, they worked. The gospel was preached and spread throughout this region of Galatia, the island of Cyprus, and there was much rejoicing, I'm sure. That's the passage for today. Part of it is a bit of a travel log, going from this place to this place to this place to this place. And there's a lot of little things that pop up here and there, many things that could be discussed, but a couple of constant themes throughout the whole chapter are they're preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, under tribulation, in hardship, while persecuted, and stoned. Those are two themes that run through the whole thing. This is a missionary journey about spreading the gospel that is successful with opposition that is always there and mounting. So two themes that run through this section. Those are the two main points that I'm going to emphasize here now, and I'm going to tie them together at the end. Let's begin with the first observation regarding the gospel that they preach. Here's the first point. The gospel is a message of grace. God is about spreading this message through his people around all the Mediterranean world. It is a message, it is a gospel good news of grace, which to some of us seems entirely obvious, but perhaps not to everybody. We're going to talk about it a little bit, and even if you're one of the people to whom that seems obvious, stop and think. This message from God to us is a message of grace. What is grace? Simple definition. Grace is an undeserved, unearned, unmerited blessing, favor. 
Simple illustration. If I say, here's my watch as a gift of grace to you, and you say, here's $20 back, it was not a gift of grace. It was a purchase or a sale. Grace is antithetical to that. Grace is free by definition, not connected to any kind of earning or meriting or deserving. Grace and desert, grace and deserving are separate things. And this message is a gospel of grace. Obviously, I take that from verse 3. They spoke boldly, and the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace. That is an apt name for the gospel. Why? Because of what the gospel gives and of how it gives it. Think about what the gospel gives. It becomes clear down in verse 15. Look down there. The traveling, preaching the gospel. And in verse 15 it says, We bring you good news. That's the very same word translated preach the gospel in two other places in this chapter. We preach the gospel to you. We preach good news. We bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things, these empty, pointless, meaningless, worthless stuff like us, like worshiping us or these idols that you make or your money or your wealth or your intelligence. The good news is that you should turn away from that and turn to the living God. That's the message. This gospel is news about how you can be connected to the living God, the true one, the real one, the only one there is. The one who deserves all of our worship and we have not given it to him and he has not struck us dead grace. Someone of such majesty, of such might, of such perfection, of such creative power deserves all of our total allegiance and we haven't given it to him and he has been so patient. What a God. And he's done more than just passively sit back and let us go on. He has provided for us. It's one thing to not strike us, it's another thing to provide. Giving us rain and crops and beyond the physical, even satisfying our hearts, giving us gladness in here. What a God. And we bring you news that you can have him. So many of us live life wrapped around vanity. I don't mean that in the modern sense of like looking in the mirror and saying, how how nice do I look? Not vanity like that. I mean it in the biblical sense of emptiness, pointlessness, worthlessness. Hoping in ourselves. Fixing life on the stuff that we have or can acquire. Seeking significance and prestige at the workplace or on the golf course. Hoping in your bank account to protect you. We live life wrapped around vanity. And the gospel is that you can and should turn away from that and turn to and find a living God. That is good news. It's grace that he would make himself available. 
The gospel is a message of grace because of what it gives us and how it gives it. This passage is not real clear on how it gives it. It's hinted at towards the very end. Verse 27, he had opened a door of faith. It's hinted at in what the word grace means, the very definition of it being undeserved and unearned. It's made a little more clear if you were to go back a chapter into chapter 13. By faith in Christ's cross, not by obeying the law of Moses. How do we get God? By grace, through faith in Christ's cross, not by works, so that none of us can boast. Paul would say it that clearly later in the book of Ephesians. It is not a message of good news if I were to tell you you can have the living God if you're good enough. Because you're not. And any self-awareness will reveal that to you. You can have the living God if you meet His standard, which is holiness, perfection, zero tolerance for evil. You can have Him on those standards. I hope there are other ones. It's good news. It's a message of grace in that God is made available. God makes Himself available, though we don't deserve it. And it's good news, it's a message of grace in that God makes himself available by what he has done and the simple call to trust it. He has sent his son to earth to take on a body, to die on the cross, to pay for my ignoring him, your despising him, your obliviousness to him, all of our wanderings. That is a message of grace. You can have him if you'll trust him only. What's the obvious response? Trust him only. Trust him only. Trust this message of grace only. And don't try to earn it. Some need to hear that. Most of us already are familiar with that. If you have already trusted Christ crucified only to pay for your sin, realize something, you still have this living God by grace. So don't try to pursue him by works. You couldn't get him by works, you can't keep him by works. Here's where this is important. Many of us understand all that I've just said, but tragically make an error with it. We hear grace, faith, cross, and we mentally put that in a box called how to get saved. And we are grateful for it. We hope in it. We bow at the cross in faith and rise up saved and then walk away from it and commence trying to live the Christian life. Which is tragic because that leaves us frankly, living not much different than conscientious non-Christians. Trying to control our sin in our own effort. Trying to be really careful about not breaking the rules. Striving after obedience and holiness by our own strength. And the problem is, it doesn't work. And it leaves you tense, 
guilt-oriented, anxious, legalistic, believing that your acceptance with God is based on your performance, which is not true. Think about yourself. Do you find yourself pursuing a noble goal of obedience and holiness? That's a noble goal. That's a good thing. But are you pursuing it like a rowboat? How does a rowboat progress through the water? The person in the boat grabs the oars and pulls. If the person in the boat does not grab the oars and pull, the boat does not move. Are you pursuing obedience and holiness and acceptance with God? Maybe it would be the, the performance of the mission that he's called you to. Are you pursuing it by grabbing hold of the oars and pulling? And when you don't move, pulling harder. Or are you pursuing it like a sailboat? Where does the power come from in a sailboat? From wind, not from the person in the boat. Is the person in the boat entirely inactive? No. If you've ever been sailing, and if you haven't been, maybe this doesn't make any sense, but if you've ever been sailing, you cannot let the boom just blow willy-nilly because the wind will catch it, will blow it straight, and then you will get no power because the wind will be going right along the sail. You've got to hold the boom so that the sail catches the wind. And then you tie it down. And then you steer. And if the wind changes or you want to change, you have to change the boom. I think, I think that's the proper term. I'm not a sailor by trade, but big bar across the bottom. <laughs> Humanly, you must be active. The power does not come from you. We must pursue God like sailboats. We must pursue obedience and holiness like sailboats. Verse 26, they sent them out on this mission, never assuming that they were going to be passive and ignorant and just kind of float along. They were going to have to take action and make decisions. They entrusted them to the grace of God for the mission that they fulfilled. Action by the grace of God, under the cover of the grace of God. Where does the power come from? The grace of God. It's all over the Bible. Read 2 Corinthians, uh, I forget the verse, chapter 1. Paul talks about how they behaved sincerely by the grace of God. Where does the power come from? How are we changed? By grabbing the oars and pulling? Or by trusting in God to transform us by the renewing of our minds? You can't renew your own mind. God by grace can. God, renew my mind. Give power to my action. I will step out trusting you like a sailboat. Some of us need to think about this for ourselves because you're walking around burdened. Pursuing a good goal, holiness. Pursuing the right thing, holiness, the wrong way by your efforts. If you find yourself drawing the boxes, drawing the lines very carefully, this might be your problem. Anxious and nervous. Am I keep am I am I am I walking the right line? Check, check, ooh, no. I feel guilty, I feel inadequate, I need to fix that. If that's kind of your experience in your heart, this might be you. You need to think about this for yourself and look at your behavior and say, 
By grace, I will be changed. Help me, God. I am no longer in condemnation because I was saved by this gospel of grace. And as Paul would later write, I now still stand in this grace. You deal with me in grace. You need to think about that for yourself, perhaps, and maybe for others around you. Are there people in your life? You know, a lot of us, we have kids that aren't perfect. Some of us have parents who aren't perfect, or at least you think aren't perfect. Siblings that mess up, sin, make mistakes. Spouses that frustrate you, that sin against you. People that you're in a group with that let you down, whether it be at work or here at the church somewhere. We have people all around us. And when they mess up, either make a mistake or flat out sin, what's your response to them? You find the box coming up, you're outside the box, get in before I accept you. Fix it before I accept you. What that is, is you still holding judgment over them, still looking on them in condemnation. Watch out. God says, if they are in Christ, there is no condemnation on that person. Delight is how he looks at him or her. Careful that you look at him the same way. Or you might end up in this odd situation. You might end up like that self-righteous older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You want to hold condemnation over this sinner. And God says, grace, guilt paid for at the cross. Are you coming in? And you're in the backyard pouting while God and the sinner are in the house having a party. Don't end up there. Grace. It's how God deals with you. It's how God deals with that person. This person's a Christian. It's how God can deal with you if you're not a Christian. Take him up on the offer. Believe. Don't try to earn it. Believe. You will be saved by grace and you will find a standing in grace that is more accepting and more heart-washing than you'll imagine. The gospel is a message of grace. Sometimes we think about that grace and it creates a bit of a problem for us when we also look at the hardship in life and say, if God is accepting of me and is loving towards me and is dealing with me in grace, what about, what's, what's the deal with this stuff? Takes us to the second point. Second observation actually begins back at the end of chapter 13 and it's one that may stop us and give us pause and it might be kind of hard to embrace. So I, I say this and I'm going to be speaking here with a little bit of trepidation because I don't know exactly how this will fall on your heart. I do not mean it to fall on you heavy. So if it falls on you heavy and it hurts you, please come talk to me and let me fix it. Here's the, here's the point. Second observation. Tribulation is a necessary ingredient in God's gracious building of the church. 
Tribulation is a necessary ingredient in God's gracious building of the church. He uses various different things, and tribulation is one of them on purpose. Tribulation, that is hardship, difficult situations, trials, pains, hurts, loss, things that bring suffering, disease in loved ones, ridicule when you share your faith, stoning, relational hardships, natural disasters, and on and on. All that stuff is part and parcel to life between Eden and the coming of the fullness of the kingdom. Christ returns. All that stuff is life here. That and more. And God is using it with intentionality, with purpose. Which is different, this is critical, which is different than saying that God is the author of evil. The Bible is really clear. God does not sin. God is not the author of wickedness. He's pure and holy. Nor is he surprised by all the evil and hardship that happens in life. He is not discovering something this morning. Wow, look, a tornado. Didn't know that was going to happen. Whoa, sin. What are we going to do with that? He knows everything. Everything that happens here passes through his fingers one way or another. Which is not to say that he's the author of evil. You've got to get your mind around both those things that are in the scripture. He uses tribulation intentionally without being sinful. I get this from two observations. One, just a noticing of a, of a general correlation here. Throughout the whole book of Acts, and then in chapters 13 and 14 especially, there are these two things going on. The gospel's going out, the church is being built, and hardship. This is normal life throughout this whole book. It's not normal to us. That's because we're abnormal. It is normal in the Bible. The gospel's going out, the church is planted, and hardship. And if you look in 13 and 14, it's all over the place. He goes from city to city to city, preaching in power, under the grace of God, backed up by the powerful blessing of God, and they stone him. These things are not antithetical to one another, that hardship and the blessing and grace of God don't go together. They go together clearly in these stories. They're present in the same paragraph. We don't yet have, just in observing those connections, we don't yet have intentionality until we come to verse 22. The second half of verse 22 is the key phrase here. Paul says something remarkable there. In the context of giving encouragement and strengthening the souls of new believers, he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, it is necessary. The word that he uses there, it's an important word. It is necessary. It must be. Word very often used in the Bible to describe divine necessity, like the scriptures must be fulfilled. It must be that we will pass through many tribulations on the way to the kingdom. He is not just saying... On the way to the kingdom, there are going to be tribulations. He's saying it must be the case that on the way to the kingdom, there are tribulations. So be encouraged. How is that encouraging? 
Why, why is he telling new believers, you know, the road to glory is deliberately mined? Be encouraged. Here's how this is encouraging. He's telling them something that they've already very clearly observed, that there is tribulation, there is hardship. When Paul's experiencing all this in the towns and then leaves, the people who are left there face hardship. They're ostracized, maybe persecuted or beaten or stoned themselves. They know this, and he's telling them that's normal. It is not outside the plan of God. It actually is within the plan of God. It is deliberate and intentional. It is necessary, divinely necessary, that it be this way. So don't think that God's abandoned you or don't think that you don't stand in grace now or that the gospel failed you because of hardship. No, the things are together. God is in this. Be encouraged. You're still standing with him in grace. So embrace it with him. He's telling them what reality is and why it is. God's in it. But why is God in it? He doesn't explain that here in this passage. We're going to look at Paul's words in two other places and realize something. We're going to talk about his purpose. Again, this does not make God the author of sin, does not make him a sinner, but it does clearly have him deliberately doing something with this. Listen to the purpose statements. I'm going to talk about two purposes, why there is tribulation on our path to glory. First one is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, which would be the next province over from where they are right here in Acts chapter 14. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's tribulation and trial. But that was, here's the purpose statement, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves and vain things such as ourselves. That was not, make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On Him we have set our hope. Do you hear the purpose in that? We faced hard tribulation. I thought I was a dead man. And that was for the reason of it. It was not an accident. It was not unintentional. It was for the reason of turning me away from myself and causing me to hope in God who raises the dead. On Him I have set my hope. Purpose to turn me from vain things to the living God. And there is much grace in that. Much love. It does not sound like 21st century American love. We think 21st century American love would be, and God bought me a Coke and a Lazy Boy and got me Dish TV. It was awesome. That would be 21st century American love. This is divine gospel love. He worked in tribulation for the purpose of turning me to the one for whom I was made. 
of causing me more thoroughly to let go of vanity in life and to cling only to the one who can sustain me, the one for whom I was made in here, the living God. Praise you for loving me that much to turn me to you, to get my attention, to make me cling. Think of how this works in your life. Do you pray, just simple, do you pray more when you're sick or when you're healthy? Do you pray more when you've got a great job or when you need money? Obvious answers. Praise God for gracious love that sometimes deprives us of money so that we'll seek him. This is why we can call joy. Tribulation and trial, we can call it joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face all kinds of tribulation and trial because it grows you. Not just grows your self-will and your determination, it fastens you to the living God. And it gives you a context in which Psalm 73 can make sense. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You. I have lost all this stuff and I now see it as the vanity that it was. And I find you to be the thing that sustains my heart. We don't find that amidst plenty. We find that amidst loss. In grace, he brings tribulation to us because it's how he grows us. There are other ways. It's not the only way. But there are other ways, but it is a significant way. It is necessary for your sake that you go to the kingdom through tribulation. And it is necessary, here's the second purpose, and it is necessary for others' sake that we go to the kingdom through tribulation. Listen to a second passage, one you're familiar with from 2 Corinthians also. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Tribulation, affliction, hardship. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that, purpose, struck down but not destroyed, carrying in my body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. I walk around persecuted, struck down in affliction and tribulation, carrying with me the death of Christ. I follow a crucified Messiah and you can look at me enduring the same things so that you can see in me the risen Messiah. His life manifested in me, shown off in me. So that you can look at someone who says, vanity, vanity. My hope is in him. He is my portion. And you can watch a person live that kind of a life and say, I don't have that. The value of Christ in that person's heart, the sustaining power of Christ in that person's heart, I don't have that. 
I'm awash in a sea determined by my circumstances. I don't see God like that person does. And maybe that person will be drawn. This is partially how God witnesses to the world by what he does with his people and how he sustains them in the midst of it. It is necessary. Think of this. I declare Christ is my all while sitting in the lazy boy with the soda and the TV. And I say, well, sure. I'd love that life. Christ is your all. It doesn't look a whole lot different than anybody else's life who has the means to buy such a television and whatnot. But when you say Christ is my all in a hospital room, that's a different message. Christ is my all, come what may in this situation. That is a radically different message. They watch you sorrowing, but ever rejoicing, because your heart fundamentally, at the bottom level, not that you don't care about that, oh my goodness, we care about those things. But fundamentally, at the bottom level, my heart is not built on the passing vanities of the world. It is attached to, fastened to, the living God, and it shows and he is lifted up. And when he is lifted up, he will draw people to him. It is necessary. What grace there is in that shown to the world. So how do you put together the, the suffering, the tribulation of life, and the grace of God that you stand in? You put them together and say that the tribulation and the hardship in life is a manifestation of God's grace to you, to grow you and mature you. And it is a manifestation of his grace to the world to display Christ for who he is. Here's where I tie these things together then. Embrace the living God in his gospel of grace amidst the tribulations of life. Don't turn away from him and doubt him, but draw to him and embrace him. You'll find him there in a unique way. And other people will find him there in a unique way because you found him there. Embrace the living God in his gospel of grace amidst the tribulations of life. We're going to pause now and give some time to pray as we move towards communion. So whatever is working in your mind and heart right now, take it to the Lord and talk to him about it. Pray, and I'll close this in a minute, and we'll move towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.